brothers and sisters, please this week turn with me in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians as we now come upon the second chapter as Paul's writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear with me then the reading of God's word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved as far as the reading of our text this morning. Well, I'm going to be honest with you guys this morning that it took me a considerable amount of time to decide how I wanted to approach this text. Um, I'm well aware of the highly controversial nature of the passage, and so it's, it's not something that I wanted to just gloss over with you, which might be the easy thing to do. Uh, nor did I want to handle it carelessly, and so through uh, prayer and much thought, I decided I want to I wanted to approach the text uh, very slowly. For our sermon today, I was planning on covering verses one to four, but after my study was completed, my notes were gathered and organized. I didn't think there was any chance I could, in good conscience, cover all the material sufficiently without leaving something out, and so today. My goal is to go over with you more of verses 1 and 2 than anything else and just to begin to prepare you by laying some groundwork for what is to come in the weeks to follow. And so before we get into who this man of lawlessness could be, or in fact is the man of lawlessness something or someone that we can identify, or even if, it, if it's right to try to identify this man of sin, I want us to understand how this one whoever it may be, might have been able to arise to begin with. How is or how was this man of sin able to, as Paul says, take his seat in the temple of God? What were or what are those surrounding factors or influences that make that possible? And do we see that same environment which allows the man of sin to rise up present today? And if so, how do we protect ourselves against it? Because don't be naive, brothers and sisters. It takes the, the right situation to prevent it, present itself for some figure like this to come about. 
They don't just pop up out of nowhere. Something had to have been building, and it is this that we are going to try to identify this morning. And so in order to do so, let's start back at the beginning of the controversy, the, the genesis of the issue, which started all the way back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Remember, the saints were confused on the details of, uh, of, our, of Christ's coming. You know, will their loved ones who already died, were they going to miss out on being gathered with him when he returns? Right? That was the heart of the issue to start with. But it didn't stop there, did it? No, the question then turned to, okay, well, then exactly when should we expect Christ's return? You know, time and date, please. That was chapter 5. And what was Paul's response to that request? It's not for you to know, so don't be worried about it. But rather be, be worried about being found faithful when Christ returns, meaning as believers we are to be living every day in expectation of his arrival, which doesn't mean that we stare out the window like you might have done as a child waiting for your friend to arrive to pick you up for a birthday party. But it means being spiritually alert always, right? But now after this first letter was written, it may have seemed that all the eschatological questions of the church in Thessalonica had been answered. But as we see today, that was not so. It seemed to only bring about new questions, which is what Paul sets forth starting in chapter 2 and verse 1 to address. And the subject, once again, is Christ's final coming. In 1 Thessalonians, it was, when will it occur? And who participates? And in the matter of months now, it has become, has it already occurred? Has Jesus, perhaps in some spiritualized manner, already returned? And this was one of at least two doctrines of Christ's return that were floating around during the time of Paul's ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there was a teaching going around that there is no resurrection. Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 15, Now if Jesus is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But more along the lines with our text today was the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy, who are saying that the, the resurrection has already occurred. It already happened. In verse 17, he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already occurred. This teaching, as you'd expect, caused the saints to become worried and confused once more. And so now Paul writes to offer them encouragement and to pro provide them with understanding. And so first we see that he encourages them in verse 2, when he tells them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a sp spoken word or a, a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's saying to them, erase whatever it is you heard from other people after you heard my first letter read to you. Whatever anyone tried to tell you about the Lord's return and tried to ascribe it to me, they are lying. They aren't telling you the truth. That they aren't my words. And better yet, they aren't the words of God. It was some imposter who came in saying they had a prophetic word, or that they were moved by the Holy Spirit, or even that they had some letter from the Apostle Paul himself, which said that the day of the Lord has already come. And so he comforts them, and he encourages them with this truth. No, Jesus has not returned. And then he provides them with understanding concerning that day. And that day 
that he is addressing then begins in verse 3 we see where he tells them let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God so Paul says until this occurs Christ won't come. You see, he provides them with right understanding for thinking about Christ's return. And so now, brothers and sisters, having gone over then from, from start to now, from the beginning until now, now having that proper understanding of the background and the context, I think that we then can push forward in our sermon today. And so the sermon then has to do today with how the man of sin even can come to be established. Right, so even before we address the question that looms heavy over the entire epistle of who this man of lawlessness is, we want to answer in what environment is he even able to flourish, which I think is important to identify and to understand, in which I think that we see answered in our text today, in which I see great worth expounding upon in order to help the church. And so we are going to look at our text this morning in part one of a multiple sermons dedicated to the man of lawlessness character under three headings. Now the first two points are going to address how this man of sin is able to originate, and our third point is going to address how we guard against it. And so point one is callous hearts. Point two is corrupt religion. And point three is Christ's word. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that we are talking about, uh, what we are talking about occurs within the context of the church, because that's what Paul's concerned with, the believing body of saints. So what I'm addressing this morning are callous hearts and corrupt religion among those who promote the name of Jesus Christ. This is the warning we see from what Paul writes in the opening verses of chapter 2. He doesn't want the church to fall down the wrong path following harmful doctrine taught by those who have callous hearts. Now, what do I mean in point one by callous hearts? Well, first, what I don't mean is the callous which ends in O-U-S, which means being indifferent to others' feelings. But rather, I mean the other type of callous that ends in U-S, the noun that speaks of that hard area of skin usually on hands and feet that have been built up over time. And so a callous heart is something likewise that oftentimes builds up over time within the heart of an individual. Now this isn't literal, but it's a metaphorical or figurative description. And we see this in the parable of the sower. The seed is the word of God as explained by Jesus in Luke chapter 8. And he goes on to describe that some of that seed being thrown down, landed upon the rocks, and we read that the, the rocks are described as those who hear the word and receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while. But in the time of testing, they soon fall away. And yet what we must even understand about falling away is that that doesn't necessarily mean that they no longer profess the Christian faith. And we see a perfect example of this in the letter of Jude. You can turn with me to the uh, Jude's letter if you'd like. And as you turn there, I, I hope that you guys have some memory of what's taking place in Jude, since 
it was just over maybe a year ago that we went through this epistle together. And so what was Jude's reason for writing this letter? Now he states it explicitly in verse 3. He says, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Then in verse 4 he goes on to say, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see, there would be no need for Jude to write this to the saints if these people he speaks of who deny Jesus were just going around to the churches saying, oh, we deny who Jesus is, we don't believe he's the true Messiah, we don't believe he's divine, we don't believe he's the Savior of all those who believe. No, they in their heart of hearts may very well believe themselves to be professing Christians. But regardless of how they might have felt, or regardless of their motivations and intentions in living among the saints, they denied Christ by their actions, as Jude will go on to describe, right? The love they may have thought at one point they had for God was never true love. And what in fact has happened is that their hearts over time have grown callous toward God. They've grown callous to His honor. They've grown callous to his glory, and they've grown callous in their obedience to his word. And it's sad, but I would venture to guess that many Christian churches today have people like this sitting in the pews. People who have no true love for the word, never read it or hear it except on Sunday. And they go about their lives with no sense of godliness. And after a time, even though they come Sunday after Sunday to church, they return to a life of sensuality, which Jude speaks of. Maybe for a time they tried to live in some form of, of purity and godliness, but they could do so only for so long before they returned to their first love, themselves. Yet the hearts of others grow callous in other ways as well. As some lose that initial zeal they may have at one point had and are led astray now through the entertainment of error. And it's these men in, particu in particular, I think Paul is cautioning the saints against today. He says to them in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see, there are people in the church who are profess Christ, but err in a fundamental tenet of the faith, the visible return of Christ. And what we see happening is that they're troubling the minds of the saints with what they're teaching. These are, are men who are not satisfied with the Word of God. And we're all familiar with individuals such as these. We've probably all experienced over the course of our life, at some church we were at some time, someone within the church who gets on some hobby horse doctrinally that they picked up from some book or some TV minister and they go around trying to convince others of its veracity. They go around trying to convince the pastor of its veracity. And these men appear to dearly love Jesus. And I'm sure they truly feel that what they're doing is advancing Christ's kingdom. Right? As they're desiring to correct some errors they see going on in their local church. And so even for those attempting to teach the saints in Thessalonica this air, I'm sure they think they're doing something good. I think 
they, they believe they're doing something helpful to the advancement of this kingdom. These are people who may have looked like those who had hearts for Jesus, but their unwillingness to submit to Paul's teaching and correction in the first letter about an issue so important as this, an issue of the gospel, it demonstrates if you could see what was inside their chests, what you would find are callous, hard, stone-like hearts. No true zeal for Jesus. No true love for the saints. But rather, they're more concerned with reinventing the wheel. They know something no one else knows. They've uncovered truths the saints have missed. And they're willing to cause trouble of it. Over, all over it. Paul's wrong. Timothy's wrong. Sylvanus is wrong. Peter's wrong. But guess what? They're right. Right? To varying degrees, this is what we see play out in controversies that arise within the the church in different denominations today. Whether that's who are the rightful ministers of the church, men or women as well. What practices are still sin? Uh, how about sex outside the confines of, of marriage and the heterosexual relationship? Or how about homosexuality? Is that sin? Or what about abortion? Or today we hear so often now about the redefinition of the gospel in terms of social justice. You see what has happened is that hearts have grown callous to the truth. Hearts have grown callous to orthodoxy, to the historic creeds and confessions of the early church. See, people want something new and they want something fresh. But that's nothing more than arrogance and pride. That's human wisdom and not spiritual. If you don't or can't find joy over the deep truths of the faith, that the church has held on to and fought to preserve from the time of Christ until now, there is something wrong with you, not them. Your heart's grown callous. And so I see much of the trouble stems from the people in the pews. You see, if this isn't the stuff people wanted to hear, these types of ministers wouldn't have jobs because they'd be preaching to an empty house. But it's the callous heart towards God's truth towards what he defines as godliness and morality by individuals that open the door for someone to come in and to give them exactly what they want. It's those hearts that have lost their joy. They're bored by God's word. Hearts that have grown sleepy and tired in their obedience to the Lord who seek to reignite it through other means. And it is these hearts that are the breeding ground for the enemy. In Matthew's Gospel, we see an example of what will happen when, the, when there is deadness in the heart of man. In the parable of the weeds, we see this explained. If you'd like, please turn with me there to Matthew's Gospel. It's Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. Here with me then, um, the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. 
So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together unto the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see, there can be no doubt that the enemy, Satan, is behind this. Even now in our text today in verse 9, Paul writes, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. In verse 7 of our text, Paul says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. You see, what this should demonstrate to us is that this isn't just something that affects the church today. This isn't just some future event. But as we've seen, even in Thessalonica, it was affecting them in their own day. Tears were being sown among the church. There were those who were callous in heart toward God. And rather than bowing before the throne and heeding our Lord's instruction and serving the rightful master, people want a different master. They want someone who will make them feel good about themselves. And so they find for themselves those types of teachers who give them exactly what they're looking for. Paul tells us this in his letter to Timothy, in this second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, this is willing deception. And we see here in verse 3 of our text today, it's this deception that Paul knows will destroy the church. This is why he says to the saints, Let no one deceive you. But so many refuse to heed his command. And what results then, brothers and sisters, is corrupt religion. This is point two. You see, the simplicity of the gospel is never enough. And so people will look for anything to capture their attention. But this has always been going on to varying degrees. I mean, today we see it in churches who put on, you know, Christian rock concerts in their worship. I mean, it's, it's 10.30 in the morning, and someone thought it was a good idea to shut off all the lights and jam out on stage like you're in some club. Yet the irony of it all is, as I thought about it, is this. Well, who do we serve? The one who is light, Jesus. We belong to a kingdom of light, and yet people want to worship him in darkness? And if it's that kind of stuff that the congregation wants to see, you can just guess the type of preaching they want to hear. But that's the problem, catering to what sinners want. And when this occurs, when pageantry and empty ceremony are present, there will be a defecting from the truth. There you will find a turning away from the true and living God and a turning oneself to idols, even if unintentionally, and turning toward anyone or anything other than God is idolatry. And idolatry is at the center of corrupt religion. This is the same thing that Paul warns the church in Corinth about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells the saints to flee idolatry, using the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup at the Lord's table as an analogy. 
Now, for the sake of time, don't worry. I'm not going to read through all 22 verses. But you can do so later, perhaps as a family, if you'd like. But the gist of what's going on is that the saints were assembling with the wicked and attending their sacrificial feasts in the temples. And Paul tells them not to do it because God is to be worshipped not only inwardly, but also outwardly by the Christian. Right? So no matter what they believed was going on there, even if they were truly worshippers worshipers of God, their outward actions were betraying that inward reality by joining with the pagan in this. He tells them in verse 20, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not God. I do not want you to part, be participants with demons. Now, none of the saints went there and were like, Hey, hey guys, let's, let's all go and worship demons together. But just like when you participate in the Lord's table, you partake in fellowship with Christ and with one another. When you eat the sacrifices in these temples, you were brought also into communion with their object of worship. And so to participate with them is to be drawn into idolatry. It is to participate in corrupt religion. And oftentimes what is the case is that if you allow yourself down this path, no matter how trivial you think the action is, it will only lead to more ritual and superstitious practices, which are incompatible with the true God. These practices lead to worship, which may sound and look Christian at times. But in fact, brothers and sisters, what it does is it denies God. It's worship not grounded in the Word, and that type of worship is empty worship. This is why Paul exhorts the saints in Thessalonica, don't be deceived, because these teachings lead to falsehood. They may have a pious exterior, but deep down inside they are vile and vain practices. And so instead, Paul tells them to do what? He says, listen to the word that was proclaimed to them. He tells them in verse 5 of our text today, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these? He said, I told you what was going to take place. I told you already everything concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. And so what we must learn from these words of Paul and from the message he's conveying to the saints, we must learn from this because we ourselves can fall into much trouble and anxiety and worry and confusion when we likewise don't heed the word of God. And this has been the cause of many who were once considered to be Christian or under the Christian banner to depart, not heeding the word of God. And this leads us then to our third and final point this morning, Christ's word. I hope we see that the, the callous heart to the word of God and to God himself leads to corrupt religion, and which then becomes prime stomping ground for the man of sin. But what we should learn from Paul's words in the opening verses is that the church grounded in the word of God will not be shaken when, de when deceptive ideas arise, but be able to spot them out, identify them, and reject them. See, this is why David in Psalm 16, verses 7 and 8 can say, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You see, David was not shaken because the Lord's instruction is what led him. 
He said that he was, he had set the Lord always before me. He was grounded in the Word of God. You see, it is not the inventions or the wisdom of man that we are to seek after. It is not the traditions that churches create. It is not outward demonstrations of piety that are to attract us. But only what is faithful to the Word of God. The Word of God is the perfect rule of faith. Right? Sola Scriptura is to be the church's motto, which means we are to be content with the revelation God has entrusted His church with. We aren't to look at Scripture as some old, dead book that needs updating, but instead see it for what it is. It's a, a life-giving word, a word that will guide the church down the path of righteousness if we only listen. The craftiness of others have led well-meaning individuals down the most terrible and damaging of paths. Paul tells the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, it is the devil's goal to lead us away from a simple, sincere, and pure devotion to Christ. But the way we guard against his craftiness and deception is by holding fast to the word. It is the word that Paul tells Timothy to proclaim in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have our marching orders as the true church. Hold fast to the word of life, a life-altering word, because it proclaims the one who is life, that is Christ. It is accompanied by the life-giving Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit. And so we must remain focused on the truth of the Word, no matter what we see others doing. And I know that sometimes that can be hard. You see what other churches do, and it has an appeal to us. But remember, that's what it was designed to do. This is why it's so important to remain focused on heaven and not earth. What I mean is by being focused on what is spiritual and eternal, and not what is earthly and what is fleeting. And I know especially during times like we're experiencing now, it's harder than ever. Uncertainty is in the air. We are stuck in our homes. So we, we sleep a lot longer. We watch a lot more TV. We eat a lot more food. The best of us at times fall into a spiritual lull. Right? No one has a constant and vigorous faith 24-7. We all become anxious, and we worry, and we spend much of our time thinking about what the world will be like once we're let out of our homes. And yet, even during these trying times, we must not allow ourselves to grow cold and callous in our hearts. And that can happen easily, unfortunately, if we are not diligent. I know firsthand, and I'm sure all of us can uh, have firsthand experience with this only through the verse, only through the use of earthly examples. I mean, I knew from the age of five to about seventeen, I played soccer almost every single day, and I loved it to death. But then after that, after the age of seventeen, I stopped playing, and I stopped practicing, and I started focusing my attention on other things, 
and over time forgot about it and lost the love I once had for it. And we can easily find ourselves doing the exact same thing with God in our spiritual life if we are not careful to continue in daily fellowship with Him. If we stop reading and praying for one day, it can easily lead to two, and then three, and then a week, and then months before you know it. We must make that our priority. We must be promoting our sanctification and guarding against temptation, especially during times like this. Just like if you wanted to remain healthy, right, physically, what do you do? You need to promote that by eating healthy, by working out, by getting sleep. And so we must also be doing the same thing to be spiritually strong. And so we must call out to God in prayer, asking for His strength. We must ask that He help to inflame the heart toward Him. That He would help us to grow in love and devotion toward Him. That He would help us to delight in communion with Him every day, but most especially on the Lord's Day. These are the ways we can guard against a callous heart and corrupt religion. This is what we must learn and take away from our passage today. That when grounded in the Word, we will not be shaken. When grounded in the Word, we will give no opportunity for such one like the man of sin to appear or for the mystery of lawlessness to arise. But ultimately, if we are Christ, we can take comfort knowing that no one can stand in our way. No one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So let us keep close as a body of saints to pure doctrine, in undefiled worship, regardless if others see beauty in this type of belief and practice. As we've all probably heard, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But the only eye that we ought to care about in these manners, brothers and sisters, is the eye of God, as He beholds the beauty of sound doctrine, piety, and practice, which only occurs when those performing are draped in the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, our faith oftentimes is lacking, our hearts and our thoughts taken captive by other things, but I pray, Lord, that you would stoke the flames of our heart towards you, that you would strengthen our imperfect faith, that you would give us discernment, that you would grant to us peace and contentment and comfort during these times and that you would use your word to teach the church so we would not be caught off guard or led astray, but rather standing united in the gospel, hold fast to your true and living word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.